Hi, I'm Lucy and welcome to the London Magazine podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting with James Connor Patterson, whose poems London Poem and Writing Poetry at 5am feature in our December-January issue. James is the editor of the anthology The New Frontier, Reflections from the Irish Border, published in October 2021. His individual pieces have appeared or are forthcoming in Granta, The Guardian, The Irish Times, New Statesman, The Stingin' Fly, among many, many others. He is a recipient of the 2019 Eric Gregory Award, and his debut poetry collection, Bandit Country, has been shortlisted for this year's T.S. Eliot Prize. To start off, I'd love to ask James to do a reading for us and to tell us a bit about the poems. Um, thank you so much for having me on, Lucy. Um, it's a real pleasure to be um, in the London Magazine. Um, I've kind of kept an eye on it as a, a keen reader um, over the years, particularly the kind of um, the reviews and the insights uh, um, into kind of literary practice and stuff. So it's it's always been a really kind of useful touch point for me. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is uh, one of the ones that's published in the magazine. Um, it's called London Poem, in which we bully home into coherence, in which rooms distend with pizza boxes, HDMI cables, glasses of Pinot Grigio and libraries of unreturned library books, in which measures of expatriation becomes a handbook for negotiating the tube, language is my home, alive other than in speech, in which articulation moves through the ingredients culled from our shopping list, garlic, chocolate, regular white bread, in which nourishment is spread mouth to mouth, skin to skin, and our salt rebuff to England has less to do with speech and more the small republic sprawled across our mattress. And then I will read the other poem um, published in the magazine as well. And this is called Writing Poetry at 5am. Is something like barricading yourself inside the archive rooms of the four courts in 1922 and waiting to be shelled. Eating milk softened day-olds, drinking porter, watching the sun rise through a knifeways crack in the sandbags and legal texts blocking the window. Clutching at rosary beads, praying, varnishing your rifle with sweat, knocking your exploded body on the names and dates that whisper above Dublin in an empty plume, settling as suit atop the barricades, becoming soil, inching out the tomb as grass and being evaporated to make rain, drinking a dirty glass of water, starting again. And then I think I'll maybe just read one more from the collection itself. Um, A lot of the poems in Bandit Country are kind of, I suppose uh, they come from um, like urban legends or stories that have been passed down um, you know, not not to be kind of too high-minded about it, but, uh, you know, kind of an oral tradition, if you like. Um, and this is one of those stories um, that was told to me, I wouldn't say verbatim, but, you know, that this kind of interpretation of it um, is very much uh, my grandfather's. Um, so it's kind of re- record, recording one of those old stories that he told me. This is called The Regulars. There we were, us Labour Club regulars, sat hunkered around the scorched end of a woodbine gasper, waiting for Darcy and discussing the horses, 
we said things like, we're all baiting dockets here, son, and stand us one paddy and I'll get you one solvent. Because as Paddy well knew, the luck of us men was perpetually on its way, having its progress hampered by critical looks from the omniscient wife, or being decanted down storm drains by paras who blocked off roads and butchered dogs, by men who damaged heirlooms and battered children. Anyone could see these were hard times, and when Darcy finally appeared he was wearing a moth-eaten crombie, and his face was hidden behind a reconditioned tea cosy. Someone told us later that he'd had a six-shot revolver stuffed inside his pocket. Others of us remember that it was a finger pressed against the inner lining of his coat. Nevertheless, once he waded out across the clubhouse floor, he was like a buckshot goose negotiating water, and it soon became clear that he intended to have us robbed. The coffers of our takings in vital need of redistribution, the excitement in his hands made manifest by their shaking. So he pipes up, to no one in particular. Put your fucking hands up and open that there till. To which Paddy responded, cool as you like, that if a single fucking penny went missing, it would be added to his tab and doubled three times over. To which Darcy relented and ordered a rum and black, his drink-blighted face still caught inside its cosy, his sloped malnourished shoulders still wrapped inside their crombie, This was in the 70s, and though I'm really not sure how, there would come a time much later when he was twice elected mayor. Thank you, James. That was really great. And just before I ask you more about the collection itself, I think what came across amazingly in in your reading is the hybrid dialect that you write in of Newry Street and Scots and Irish-inflected English. Yeah. why did you do this? Why why was that the choice you made? Um, actually, when I first started writing the poems in, in Bandit Country, um, a number of them had already been published before they were kind of collated and collected together, and they were written in, I suppose, what you would call standard English. Um, but uh, what happened was, when the poems were all together, and I knew that you know the subject was kind of to do with home, and it was to do with the people that I grew up with, there was something about it that kind of felt disingenuous, um, you know, by rendering these stories in standardised English, because you know that's not how people I grew up with talked. Um, they talked, you know, in that kind of hybrid of slang and and dialect, um, and. You know, similarly, you know, the tradition in, in Irish poetry would be very kind of binary. You know, um, it would be either a choice between standard English or writing in Irish. Um, and so there was nothing really to look at within Ireland um, for precedent. Um, although there is a great tradition within Scots poetry of um, writing in dialect. So, you know, you have people like Tom Leonard. Um, you have prose writers like Irvine Welsh and James Kelman. Um, and so... I kind of borrowed, I guess, from the Scots tradition and decided to kind of uh, see what it would be like if that was transposed into an Irish environment. Um, So it's kind of an experiment, if you like. That sounds like a brave thing to do. In in the back of your head, were you thinking at any point, how am I going to pitch this to agents and publishers? Yeah, I mean... um, 
I suppose the the way that I made the argument was that because there was a precedent of this in other traditions, so you know, Scott, I mentioned Scots for example, but you know, um, you have uh, like second generation Caribbean poets like Linton Quizzy Johnson, um, who writes in you know the kind of patois of his area um, and the language that he would have grown up with. Um, you know, people like Jay Bernard or um, you know, even a m- more contemporary example, I guess, like um, Caleb Femi um, and those sort of collections. And so, you know, it was borrowing from a number of different traditions um, and kind of um, attaching that to um, the Irish tradition and, and kind of making a case for it that way. Do you think it tends to work quite well also and is is more powerful in poetry that is politically engaged it seems to suit quite well yeah definitely um you know i think there's there's definitely an argument to be made and you know it's not it's not an explicit thing in the book but you know one of the kind of underlying influences i suppose around bandit country is the way that the area was characterized and you know the backdrop of the irish troubles um and the legacy, I suppose, of kind of colonialism on the island. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at different examples of, you know, um, colonial uh, strife or, you know, um, you know, interrelationships between one country and another. The first thing that is often uh, a casualty of those sort of conflicts is, is language um, where... The kind of standardized language of the colonizer is is used as a political tool, um, and because you know I didn't have the 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 traditional, though I do have a little smattering of Irish, um, but I'm not fluent in it, um, as you know a lot of people um, on the island aren't. Um, it was a kind of I suppose yes, uh, consciously. Um, going back to dialect and, and moving away from standardised English as a maybe consciously political act. And that sense, I suppose, of community also, which yeah. I know is a big theme running through the collection, yeah. which I'd love as well for you to tell us a bit more about the story behind Bandit Country as well. Yeah, so, um, you know, I kind of, uh, I've mentioned before that um, a lot of the poems in the book uh, are inspired by you know, local mythology um, or, you know, kind of stories that I would have received from friends and relatives or urban legends, kind of the stuff that you get in, you know, small towns everywhere. Um, and kind of uh, in some instances, you know, um, imagining, um, you know, the, the, the voice behind those stories or, you know, imagining the kind of people real or not, that are involved in those kind of scenarios and, um, you know, trying to get inside the the mechanics of the story and sort of pick it apart through verse. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, a lot of it was me just kind of putting a, a formal framework on it. You know, they, as I say, a lot of these kind of stories were sort of, uh, you know, poetic in their own right and they would be delivered probably a lot more poetically than, than I could do. Um, so yeah, it was really just kind of formalising and, and writing down what otherwise would have been like an oral tradition, you know. Mm-hmm. 
So the sense of place has really weaved its its way yeah. into your work. And what is the the story behind the, the title then? Because that's a very political yeah. title to use. Would you like to tell us a bit yeah. more about that? So the term Banda Country to describe the area that I grew up in um, was first coined in 1974 by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the time, uh, Merlin Rees. Um, and, you know, this is at the height of the Troubles, 1974. Um, and the area I grew up was, uh, you know, very, or it was known as kind of very uh, Republican slash, you know, um, Irish Catholic. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the motivation behind, you know, designating an entire population of people as, you know, banda country country or you know uh, rebels or insurgents it kind of preempted uh, people always felt a justification for any kind of act of atrocity carried out against them so you know 1974 two years previous you had Bloody Sunday in Derry um, a year before that you had um, you, you, you had a massacre in West Belfast as well and it was always felt that, you know, that sort of thing could happen um, in Uri as well. And so it was kind of a, maybe like an ironic twist on, on the title that, you know, um, if people pick up a book called Banda Country, they kind of expect all these salacious, like, um, violent stories. And I, I wanted to kind of flip it over and show that there was another side to it, that, you know, people had this kind of dark sense of humour that, got them through it, you know, the sense of community, family and all of that kind of thing. So it's it's the flip side of, I suppose, the, the band of country that people didn't see or that didn't make the news headlines. What drew you to wanting to write about it? Was it knowing there were all these stories and myths and just wanting to, to get them down? Yeah, I mean, um, part of it actually, um, it sounds almost cliche now because it's you know so long well it's not even that long ago it feels longer ago than it is but you know the brexit vote in 2016 brought the irish border area back into i suppose public consciousness because you know there were all these kind of arguments about whether you know it would lead to a hard border and what would a hard border look like would it be militarized again and there were all these kind of underlying fears and a lot of the publicity around that idea um, you know was generated by kind of news headlines in you know London or or Dublin you know kind of two sort of centers that had, had no I guess direct experience of what it was actually like on on the ground um, you know not necessarily around the troubles period but actually around the period of like 2016 and what people thought on the ground um, you know there was a sense of feeling that we were being spoken for um, and so it was yeah it was kind of a uh, an idea of balancing that out a little bit and you know kind of giving a, a bit of a, a, a local voice back into the conversation How was it growing up were you were you a big reader of poetry um, I, I came to poetry I mean I'd say maybe relatively late, um, you know, in terms of 
like sitting down and like enjoying it as as an uh, an independent art form. Uh, you know, maybe sort of seventeen, eighteen, just as I was about to leave school. Um, and then I started experimenting with writing my own, and you know, you have to go through a, a long period of trial and error before you find your own voice. Um, and yeah, I think um, I, 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 probably the first example of uh, a poet who showed that it, um, you know it, it could be a, um, an art form that wasn't um, alienating. You know, because, you know, if you read sort of Wordsworth when you're 16 or whatever, it, it doesn't sort of speak to your own experience. The, f- the first example of someone that felt like he was talking to me was um, was Seamus Heaney. Um, and, you know, that came through school, you know, it was on all the syllabuses and stuff. But um, that was an example of someone kind of talking about their own direct experience of growing up, um, in that case, in you know, 1950s, 1960s dairy, um, but doing it in such a way that, you know, you don't feel like you're um, reading something overly formalised. You don't, you know, feel like you're detached from that experience. It feels like you're very much having a, a direct conversation with them. Um, and so that kind of opened up the possibility of, you know, doing it myself and developing that practice. And growing up as part of the ceasefire generation, do you feel there there is a a want at the moment to to reframe the argument as you were just saying, or to reframe how how these places were were shown to be, which wasn't necessarily yeah the truth? yeah definitely. Um, I think uh, on the one hand, you know, um, the kind of almost near dismantling of the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement um, in the wake of the Brexit vote and, you know, the ongoing battles that are uh, happening around the Northern Ireland Protocol and, you know, how that's kind of, you know, to take the Brexiteer argument, you know, holding up, you know, the the, the ideal that they're, that they're after. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's, it's very much about kind of preserving the spirit of, of the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, kind of post-ceasefire and being in a period of, of relative peace. Um, I suppose the flip side of it is recognising that, you know, there is still work to be done, um, that a lot of the tensions that existed um, and came to the fore during the, the Troubles um, are, are still underlying and are, are, and are still there. Um you know, through various things, you know, like uh, there's been a couple of studies done around, you know, um, like inherited or um, like epigenetic trauma, you know, being fed through from like parents' generations and being passed down. And so I think it's going to be maybe a few years before um, we come to terms with that. Um, But yeah, I think starting to open up uh, honest dialogue um, around where we are politically um, as well as socially um, is like a really important first step. What place can poetry and literature play in that? Yeah, it's it's tricky. I think um, it, it actually makes me think of there's a TV show on at the moment um, by the historian um, Simon Sharma um, on BBC um, called The History of Now um, and it, his entire thesis is exactly that point. It's, you know, what role does art 
play um, during periods of conflict um, and, you know, getting past those periods of conflict. So he looks at artists from, you know, uh, the former USSR and, you know, what they were doing as kind of dissidents who were, you know, putting their lives at risk a lot of the time, working um, under, you know, extremely strict conditions. Um, you know, same again during the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, you know, people like Nina Simone speaking out and, you know, kind of uh, James Baldwin and people like this. Um, so I certainly do think that there is a role that art can play in not not necessarily uh, changing, you know, it, it doesn't, the, the art itself doesn't change the scenario, but it does kind of um, maybe inspire someone else who is more politicized and who maybe is more of an activist to go off and kind of formulate their theories and, and think about how to achieve real change. So I think it's an important link in the kind of chain. How did you approach writing about Newbury? Because sometimes it can be so difficult to write about a place where yeah. you're you're in it all the time and sometimes you just it's so difficult to to get distance from that was it when you moved to london that you felt there was that space then to look back and and have the ability to write about it yeah i think you know um within irish literature obviously the the kind of um top tier that everyone looks to is is joyce and joyce once said about dublin that uh or Ulysses, rather, that if Dublin disappeared off the face of the earth, that they could recreate its streets and, you know, the kind of map of the city out of his book. Um, that was the kind of ambition that he had for the book. Um, and so kind of thinking about that as a, as a starting point um, was, was really useful. Um, kind of delivering a, a visual map of... Um, of Newry. It sounds strange, you know, when you compare it with like, you know, Joyce was writing about Dublin um, or Frank O'Hara was another kind of example that I look to where he's like talking about all these streets in Manhattan and, you know, going on, on kind of daily walks and just kind of almost documenting his day. Um, but you have a real visual sense of that kind of time and place, um, which really shines through his writing. And so, you know, um, I wanted to apply that to my own experience, um, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, in a in a big city like like New York or even a kind of you know small to moderate sized city like Dublin. Um, I think it can still kind of find its own resonance, um, and people can you know kind of apply their own experience to it as well. Have you found your relationship with Newry has has changed since you've written the collection? Um, I think part of what I was writing about was the noticing that my relationship with, with the place was changing anyway. Um, you know, I started out with that kind of idea of, you know, Joyce, so like, you know, recreating, um, you know, if Nuri was to disappear off the face of the earth, that you could kind of recreate it from, um, from a book of poetry. But the more I kind of uh, wrote about it, um, the more I understood that, you know, places aren't static. You can't, you know, uh, having a fixed map of a place only is, you know, that place in a particular time. Um, 
and is only from like an individualized perspective. Um, you know, places like people are in a constant state of change. And, you know, every time I fly back there and visit my parents, I'm going to do it again now in the run up to Christmas. Um, you know, there's always, you know, somewhere like a pub or a shop or something, some kind of thing that I've used as a landmark growing up um, that has closed or has moved or um, or similarly, you know, new buildings are going up and you kind of don't recognise them. So it's always kind of shifting and, and changing um, in subtle ways. While the core of it is kind of still recognisable, um, a lot of it isn't. Um, and it's about kind of coming to terms with that fact. What has the reception in Newry been to Bandit Country? Yeah, really good. Um, my first launch for the book was actually um, back in Newry. Um, uh, yeah, that was that was really special. Um, you know, uh, they actually um, give me use of the old, like uh, the main auditorium in the in the town hall um, to launch it, which was great. And you know, it was just that old thing of like seeing family and friends and you know kind of celebrating that way um so no that it, it was it was lovely and i think people have understood that you know um you know using the the point of using a title like bandit country and you know the intention behind it um i was kind of one of one of my worries was that it would be taken maybe in the wrong way um, but people kind of understood right away what i was trying to do have you had anyone come up to you and, and recognise stories or certain sayings? Um, well, certainly, yeah, certainly like my my parents. Um, you know, a lot of those, these things would have been kind of passed down directly from, you know, my dad or my granda. Or, uh, there's a poem about my granny in there as well. Um, and, you know, kind of recounting a lot of their experiences, you know, during the kind of... Uh, uh, like emigration is obviously a big theme in the book as well um, and all four of my grandparents at, at various points over the years um, found themselves um, in England looking for work um, now they all ended up back back in Ireland eventually but um, it just interested me that you know that, that thread sort of runs throughout the generations so you know my grandparents spent time living and working here my parents um, spent a little bit of time in the 80s living and working um, in Coventry. And then uh, now, now I, I live in London, so it's kind of a, a constant theme um, or thread that runs throughout. Um, and by kind of linking those stories together, um, yeah, I, I think they, they recognised a, a lot of themselves in it. And has it ignited conversations about looking back to these times and... And I'm sure such a traumatic time. A lot of people might not want to remember some of those days. So how how have these conversations been? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, um, that was part of the reason that I wanted to avoid um, like a direct legacy of the Troubles sort of narrative. Um, because, you know, first of all, I think, you know, enough examples of that exist and you know they've been done well you know there's there's no kind of need to return to that or to kind of add my perspective to it um but you know the kind of flip side of that as well is you know um it was kind of motivated by 
showing the other side um, of the story, showing that, you know, despite what was going on around people, that people still lived normal lives, you know, teenagers still um, went out with a bottle of cider and kind of sat around in a park drinking and, you know, people still had a sense of humour and, you know, fell in love and did all the kind of normal things that people do. Um, you know, the, the the war kind of happened in, in, in spite of... Um, of people living their normal lives. Throughout the collection, you use a variety of forms as well. You you seem to use the sonnet form quite often. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, um, I uh, a few years ago, I, I lived before I lived in London. I lived in Liverpool for a couple of years, and um, the University of Liverpool used to put on um, events where they would invite kind of poets and writers to come and it was open to the public and I remember going once and listening to a German poet called Jan Weiner um, who had written a book of sonnets and he was asked do you know the question like why why the sonnet and the way he described the sonnet was because it's such a short form um, you have to pack a lot into it um, and there, what that what that actually gives you is like a, a an intensity. The way he described it was, it's like a controlled explosion. Um, you know, where you're packing all of these kind of big details, and you know, kind of rushing towards a conclusion. It feels like, yeah, it feels kind of explosive in a way, and you know, um, almost as if it's going to burst out of its form. Um, and I like that idea. I kind of like the imagery of you know, a, f- a form of poetry being like a controlled explosion. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of went away after that and thought about, um, you know, using the sonnet as like, you know, the shortest form possible to tell some of these big stories um, and what impact that would have on the reader. I think it comes across so powerfully in the collection. Yeah. And How... Have you found the success the collection's had? It, you know, snapped up by Picador, a debut collection, and has now been shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. That's that's a whirlwind for a debut. Yeah, um, really, really surprising. Um, you know, when I was putting the collection together, um, you know, your your only goal is just to get it published, um, and so, you know, you're kind of shopping it out to, to to publishers and, you know, kind of half expecting them to come back and say kind of, you know, thank you, but but no thanks. Um, and there was a little bit of that in the start, but, um, yeah, when it was picked up by Pecador, that was, you know, amazing, you know, kind of very unexpected. And similarly, with the recent reception of it um, uh, on the T.S. Eliot list, like that, for me, you know, that was always like the, uh, like the pinnacle of like a, a, a poetry career was imagining yourself in that scenario. Um, so it, it feels quite surreal um, to be in that now. Um, and I think it probably will keep feeling surreal un- until, you know, the ceremony and whatever happens. Um, but we'll see. And you also have an MA in creative writing. Do you think you'll venture into the waters of fiction at any point, or and how has your journey to poetry happened? Yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a convoluted route. Like I, 
I started writing poetry when I was sort of in my late teens. Um, did an undergraduate in, in English. And then, you know, when I was thinking about doing an MA, I didn't really know what direction to go in, but I knew that I liked writing. Um, and when I took on to do the MA at Queen's, um, you know, um, prose and fiction was, you know, the, the central the central part of it, um, which I enjoyed. Um, but, you know, obviously poetry is, is where is where my heart is but I suppose I did find that really useful in you know in the sense that you know first of all I kind of noticed that the, uh, the distinction between poetry and prose a lot of the time is is very blurred you know if you take somebody like Max Porter um, or you know we've talked about Joyce um, and Ulysses like Ulysses being an adaptation of you know you know, arguably, arguably the most kind of famous epic poem in history in um, the Odyssey. Um, and the line that Joyce uses between, you know, stream of consciousness, so, you know, sometimes it does read like poetry. Um, but what it, it kind of taught me was um, that, you know, for a poem to be effective, um, people might disagree with me on this, but, you know, for, from my perspective, um, my favourite poems are, are ones which have a, an identifiable narrative in them um, and you know working in, in fiction and prose sort of taught me how to structure a narrative um, similarly you know if I'm if I'm dabbling in prose um, you know the, the, on a kind of sentence by sentence level um, poetry sort of teaches you like a an economy of, of words um, and you know the other side of it as well was the, the level of um, teaching um, at Queen's at that time, you know, um, I talk a lot about Kieran Carson and his influence. Um, you know, uh, he was kind of a mentor to a lot of um, people writing poetry in Belfast. Then, but you know, uh, there were people like Sinead Morrissey and Leontia Flynn, um, and it was just this kind of very rich um, well of influences that were all kind of feeding in. Um, and then you know it, when you're in it, and it, you know it's, it's immediate. You can you don't feel it, but you know, looking back, I get that that was you know formative, kind of being around um, that level. So it all weaves in, yeah, together. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah the you know on the differences actually in 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 their different styles as well. Um, you know. Uh, Karen would have been about, you know, very much about Belfast and place and, you know, kind of psychogeography almost. Um, whereas poets like Sinead and Leontia um, were more formal. Um, and I think I maybe took that from them, you know, using kind of form or modernizing form and kind of adapting that to your own, your own patterns. And now you're... Uh, well, one of our judges in our poetry prize. Yeah. So you'll be mentoring yeah, our entrance. Would you like to offer some advice for for yeah. people thinking of entering? Yeah, I mean, you know, I judges and poets like we all have our own biases, um, and so what I would say first of all is, you know, when you enter a poem into a competition, and you know you don't progress through to maybe as far as you wanted it to go. It really is 
not about you know the quality of your work it, it all comes down to kind of the biases of the judges and what they like to read and what their preferences are because um, people kind of tend to forget that that writers are, are readers too and you know we all have our favorites um but what i would say is you know um anyone who kind of utilizes imagery um in a certain way or sent you know sent uh, kind of writes sensually in a way that you can kind of immerse yourself in in the in the narrative that's going on um, in the poem um those are the ones that kind of really speak to me but similarly you know if if they have a kind of rhythm and and the music and again an, an individuality that is identifiable beyond the poem then you know um if you've achieved that then you know that's that's something that most people don't reach in their career um so that's definitely something i would look out for as well and what are your views on contemporary poetry in general at the moment yeah i, th- I think it's in a really strong place um you know you you read these sort of opinion pieces every so often about you know the death of the novel and you know um because we're you know some writers are moving away from a more formalized style of writing that you know poetry is in crisis and all this and it, you know it's it's nonsense um as i said earlier i think it, the distinction a lot of the time between poetry and prose is is arbitrary um and as long as you know somebody somebody's writing it doesn't have to be true in the kind of objective sense but if it feels true to the reader then that's all that matters and you know there are a lot of contemporary writers out there who are really really strong and really kind of identifiably their own writer um and you can kind of step into their their world with ease um you know if you can achieve that then you know in my opinion that that deserves to be up there with the kind of classics that we've inherited do you think there is a growing market at the moment as well for the more politically engaged poetry. Yeah, I think you know, I uh, I had a discussion with a friend a while back about you know how the broader political environment influences art, and you know, obviously we talked about the the Simon Shama TV program as well, um, and how art kind of makes an intervention at various points throughout history. Um, if you look back at the generation of British poets in the 1930s, so like Spender, McNeese, um, you know, Day Lewis, Auden, um, you know, those guys were writing not only against the backdrop of rising fascism around Europe, but often writing explicitly against it. Um, um, what you're starting to see now, um, you know, it's maybe, it's not even a recent phenomenon. Like, it, this is, you know, pre kind of 2016, pre Trump, this was all bubbling under and it is it, it has kind of exploded out. But you are seeing, you know, poets and writers who are responding to that environment and often are directly challenging um, some of those narratives. Um, and while the art itself, you know, maybe can't hold back that tide you know the hope is that you know an activist or someone who has that kind of 
um, motivation to follow, follow through, um, that it sparks something off in them um, to, to resist against it. So, um, yeah, I think we're definitely in a time of political turmoil and I think, you know, art at the moment is all the stronger for it. And your own work, what you're working on at the moment and also in the future, do you see that taking the same shape as as bandit country being politically engaged and and interested yeah um i think you know it, it it's it's hard for me to kind of um divorce you know the 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 two ideas of you know the personal and the political um from each other um so often they're you know they are interlinked you know whether that's you know from somebody's kind of domestic experience of, you know, not being able to switch on the heating or, or put food on the table. You know, it does, it comes right back down to, you know, a, a, a domestic level. Um, and so at the moment I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, <laughs> trying to work on something, um, which calls back to the financial crisis in 2008. Um, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of kind of parallels between what's going on now with, you know, inflation and everything else. Um, and the hardship that people are experiencing. Um, but yeah, the trick is, you know, trying to make that a personalized, you know, I don't want it to be a polemic at the same time. I want it to kind of, um, I want it to kind of speak to people in a way that, you know, they can recognize it within their own individual lives, um, rather than, you know, this kind of grand narrative about what's, um, what's going on in the world. Are you having to approach that differently than bandit country? Because obviously 2008 wasn't as far back, so there isn't that much distance yeah. and not much time for myths and stories to have been made. So yeah, is uh, that quite different? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's probably a lot more direct, I'd say, than bandit country. So where in a lot of ways I wanted to um, almost shy away from the direct troubles narrative um and you know uh, the influence of of older stories um and things like that with the the new piece of work um calling back to 2008 you know it actually you you know I'm, tr I'm trying to kind of marry parts of prose with you know bits of more formalized poetry and bringing in kind of you know, statistics and things like that as well. It sounds strange, but, you know, um, I read a book recently by um, Claudia Rankin um, called Just Us, um, which is a, a kind of, like all of her work, it's a, it's a hybrid between, you know, memoir and, and prose and, and poetry. Um, but Just Us um, specifically kind of adopts this almost academic tongue um, and she utilises statistics and I think she actually has graphs and things in the book as well so it's quite strange but she marries that together with with poetry um, in a way that almost is seamless um, and I suppose that's that's kind of what I'm I'm going for whether whether it comes off successfully or not is something we'll have to say but I think it's perfectly aligned as well to how we live our lives now every time you you log into Twitter it's you see so many statistics and yeah. videos it's just yeah, all yeah, these numbers and supposed facts and everything it, flying at us all the time. Yeah, it's that um, that idea of like information overload, yeah. isn't it? Um, you know, and 
Rank, uh, Rankin's work has has captured that you know throughout her career. You know, I've mentioned Just Us, but you know, you read a book like Citizen as well, or um, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, which goes back to I think you know the aftermath of the Iraq War and things like that. She has always written in that kind of register where you're surrounded by you know even pre-internet, but like you know news headlines and things like that. So um, yeah, I, I suppose that's. You, you don't think too much about how you know those things kind of influence your practice but of course they do because you know it's it's social media is something that you know all of us use and we can't escape from um so yeah it's it's not surprising that it would kind of seep its way in there and how is the work going can we expect another collection soon um i wouldn't say soon um <laughs> probably yeah i don't know i i yeah uh, it's good. I think I've like a, I have a solid framework for it, and maybe about tentatively half of it written. Um, but yeah, like it'll probably have to go through edits and all of that as well once it's done. So who knows? We'll keep an eye out yeah. for it, definitely. <laughs> and now we'd like to move on to the part of the podcast where we invite our listeners to send in some of their literary dilemmas. We all know writing and getting a break into publishing can seem really overwhelming and isolating. So we reached out to our listeners in the hope of creating a space where they can send in their dilemmas and ask for advice from somewhere, from someone who has been there, done it and got their work out there. So I'm going to read a dilemma that has been sent in anonymously for you to ponder and we would love to ask for your guidance on it. The dilemma is... I write professionally and also keep a journal. In my professional writing, I avoid using the first person, but I wonder if this holds me back from more powerful storytelling. That's uh, that is interesting. Um, yeah, I think part of the reticence I think about people using the first person um, maybe comes from a lack of confidence in their own voice. Um, and what I would say just is, you know, if writing the kind of objective third-person point of view works um, for you creatively um, and that's where you feel most comfortable writing, well, uh, you know, then, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But if you think that there is room to kind of expand um, your writing style, um, and you feel that, you know, kind of using the first person would be, I don't know, crass or arrogant or whatever, you know, the kind of term that would go through your head is when, when you're talking in your own voice, you know, you have to kind of scrap that. Um, and I would use the example of, you know, it's, it's funny that that person mentioned journaling. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, if you're writing in a journal, you're you know, almost by default, writing in the first person, but not publishing in it. Um, and what I would say is, like, journaling as an art form um, is is something that, you know, people seek out and, and read. Like, I'm thinking of um, Annie Erno, for example, um, who recently won the Nobel Prize. Um, like, almost all of her work is in that register, um, but it's engaging because you feel like you're living through, she has this brilliant way, and I don't know how she does it, of describing her day to day, but, 
you know, kind of alluding to the broader kind of political context um, of, you know, 20th century France usually, um, you know, the student protests in the 1960s and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you feel like you're there because of um, this very, very personalized relationship that she has with those broader political events. Um, and so I think, yeah, you know, and that has pre- precedent, obviously. You, you, in London, you have like Samuel Pepys and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking now that, you know, you know, the first person as well, it doesn't have to be fiction. You know, it's, you know, non-fiction is taken off in a big way as well because people are kind of looking for that personal connection um, with an author. Um, and so what, yeah, ultimately what I'd say to this person is if you feel like you have it in you to write in the first person, then definitely go for it. Um, but similarly, if that doesn't work for you and, you know, you want to stick with what you're doing now, then, you know, do that. If that's what makes you kind of comfortable and, you know, if that's what you feel your voice as a writer is. And like you say, you could always try giving memoir writing a go and yeah. and just using yourself as, as, you know, a window or a set yeah. of eyes into telling other stories. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, even people who, you know, we, we think of as, as fiction writers, um, you know, I keep coming back to, to Joyce in this session, but like, you know, if you read a book like Portrait of the Artist, um, it's essentially an autobiography. Um, he's just changed the names. Uh, you know, he's not James Joyce, he's Stephen Dedalus. Um, and, you know, it kind of gives him that freedom to explore, you know, maybe nastier sides of his character or sides of his character that are wish fulfillment or things like that. Um, but essentially the core of it is Joyce himself. Um, and, you know, autofiction as a genre is, is growing as well. You know, you have people like Chris Krauss and, you know, um, yeah, like memoir writing and essay writing like that. It's, it's a, it's a big thing at the moment. And it all comes back to, you know, the identification of the reader, um, with that person, you know, sort of recognizing those experiences, um, and in, in someone who's, you know, kind of writing from a, a different point of view. Thank you, James. I think that's really useful advice. And I'm sure our listener will, will take a lot from that. Hope so. <laughs> and thank you for coming to chat with us today. It's been really great. I oh, know it's, it's been amazing. Um, thank you so much for inviting me in. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And James's poems, London Poem and Writing Poetry at 5am are available on our website and also in our new issue, which is also available on our website to buy. You can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag and on Facebook. It's The London Magazine. Thank you for listening and see you soon.